It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In late July, we had a very special gathering of Ellerslie alumni here in Windsor, Colorado. The week that they were here was filled with pithy and poignant reminders about the Christian life. You know, that version that is all in, fully given and abandoned to God. Hey, this is Eric. I have to admit, it was really, really special seeing friendly, familiar faces on our campus again. Boy, did I miss it. This week spent with the students was truly magnificent and precious. And since I'm traveling with the family over these next two weeks and won't be able to be present and live in the chapel for our Daily Thunder broadcast during that time, I'm going to take a short hiatus for my World War II series, which I will pick up upon my return. And I'd like to share recordings of five of the messages that I delivered during this powerful week with the alumni. I hope that you'll be encouraged by these living truths just like I was. If you have a desire to be discipled this year, please go to ellersley.com forward slash daily and look at the training options that are still available in 2020. And please don't let the finances stand in the way of you applying. We have scholarships. So follow what the Holy Spirit may be nudging you to do and trust that he will make a way. And now, without further ado, a bit of thunder. It's tremendously easy to lose ground in your spiritual life. Take it and then just lose it. And one of the things you're going to see when the Israelites are taking the land of Canaan is they're going to leave behind them garrisons in the different cities. Why? What what is that? It's to keep the territory. A strong man retains his riches. And so as we go through this, you're going to notice that there's a few things that we've let slip. We've let them slip globally as a body of Christ, but we've let them slip individually too. And what I would like us to do is ratify these key dimensions. This first one is, is an unusual message that is going to, you're going to probably see in the, in the big picture why we're giving it to start, but it's called Leading in the Dark, and it's, it's going to be extracted in, in certain form from uh, a message I gave about Winston Churchill back in, I think, February. And, uh, but it's going to tie in with Jesus and it's, it's the leadership model of Christ. I'm going to utilize Winston Churchill to show a very unusual form of leadership in the midst of darkness. When you are in a dark time, when the world is in a dark time, it is especially difficult to lead. And you remember what I started with yesterday as I said, we need to be extremely gracious with our leaders right now. This is a very difficult time to lead. And There are seasons of history where it has been exquisitely challenging to lead. And most men fail in those moments. And so as a result, we tend to not look at them as a model or as an inspiration because they collapsed under the weight of it. There are going to be men in uh, between World War I and World War II that are actually going to start out with such bravado in their position and they will end up losing their job because they had a nervous breakdown in the position. And I mean, these are big leaders, big names, and they will literally collapse under the pressure. The calling of the Christian is one that is built to last. They are built to endure, and they are built to walk through the most challenging of circumstances without faltering. And yet most of us, when I say something like that, dig in our own pockets. And we're like, okay, God, but I don't have that. And I would just quickly, readily agree with you. You don't have what it takes to lead the church of Jesus Christ through this hour. The Holy Spirit has everything you need. You have been supplied precisely what you require to fulfill your role. You need to remember that. And so when we study a model, we need to recognize how that sort of model is formed. The model of Christ is, of course, the most poignant for us because what we're going to see is the Son of God, literally on earth, in a body, in the darkest hour, leading his people, leading captivity captive. In other words, he is actually going to go into the jowls of hell and wrench his people out. I mean, it's an extraordinary tale. And so what we're going to see is leadership at the highest, most virtuous, most perfected level. And all of us could just say, 
Okay, and you expect me to follow? And what does he say? Follow me. What he is doing is he's setting a pattern, but it's a pattern that is superhuman. I can't do that, God. I know. Which is why it is better for you that I go to be with the Father. Because you need something. You need something in that body of yours. And if I go to be with the Father, I am in a sense unlocking that floodgate. I am unlocking the door for that which you need to come in and invade you. So that in this body you can function in this earth the way I would if I were living in your body, which I am. In other words, Christianity is that great mystery called the mystery of godliness. Godliness being the way God would behave if he were in a body. If if that's probably the best way of describing godliness. Okay, so how are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to behave as God would behave in your body? So many Christians, as we all know, because we've participated in this ridiculous routine of trying to drum it up ourselves where we have tried to be virtuous, where we have tried to be pure, where we have attempted in our best efforts to showcase the divine nature in and and through our bodies. Because we know that's what God requires. That's what he commands. And yet the command is not given to us to dig in our own pockets out of our own efforts. We have been saved by grace. And we have been empowered by grace. God working on our behalf. What saves you? God working. He went and worked for you. You believe on that and that work is shared with you. Now you live in this body in hostile territory. How are you going to pull it off? God working. You still have to engage. You still have to believe. Your job is believing. Your job is holding on. Your job is saying, God, I will not let go until I get all of that in me. And yet all of that desires to be in you. God is not going to slap you on the back of the hand when you say, God, I need more of you. He delights to give you all of himself. So leading in the dark, to lead well, you must follow well. If you're going to be an influencer in this world, leadership is a whole study in and of itself. We have a whole bunch of books written on leadership. But it's ultimately to impact and to influence those around you to see them follow in a direction that otherwise they may not have gone. We have an influence as the church of Jesus Christ. The devil is attempting to negate our voice. He is attempting to negate our ability to lead others. And in many countries, it has become illegal to lead others towards Christ. And as a result, it becomes increasingly more and more difficult or for lack of a better term, dark, and we need to now lead in the dark. It's a challenging time to lead, and most of us would prefer to have the light on. We would prefer to have our leadership assignment be given to us when it would be the most simple job, the most easy to accomplish, as opposed to have it be impossible as its basic definition. So, yes, Lord, what is your command? I need to forewarn you ahead of time before I give you this command. It will be impossible, Eric. Uh, sir, uh, yes, uh, I, I still, I, I receive your command. I mean, impossible. What a terrible way to start the command that we have been given the commission that we have received. We actually cannot do in our own strength. When we recognize that it causes us to cling, which is exactly what we must do. He has supplied us everything we need. Isn't that a great, he's called the old lion. And then another nickname for him is the old bulldog. Doesn't he look sort of like a bulldog? He looks like a bulldog too. This guy is a fascinating study. My, have I ever mentioned that my middle name is Winston? <laughs> in, in the World War II series, I bring that up almost every episode. Uh, so I, my, in 1940, he is going to step into office. 1940 in Great Britain is literally one of the most extraordinary years in their history, if not the most extraordinary year. But it's because of this man. And you could almost in history, and most people have had to acknowledge it, there's a lot of people that do not like this man. And I have a a strange fascination with Winston Churchill. My dad is going to be born in 1941. And even though he's American, right? 
the impression of this man and what he did in Great Britain in the year 1940 is going to so impress itself upon my grandparents that they're going to name my dad Winston. And so my heritage has always sort of had a, a respect and an admiration for this man. He's definitely not God. I definitely wouldn't want you to just grow up to be uh, like Winston Churchill. He had some habits that were not necessarily uh, that good. And yet there is a quality in this man that I would say, if we could extract it out, I would, I would want you to have this, 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 and this quality out of this man. There's something that set him apart that built him for such an hour as he was in. It's an Esther type of situation. And many people would say he's possibly the most important person in the last 100 years. I mean, it's, he's truly remarkable. If this man is not on earth at the time, Hitler likely rules most of the known world, and we're still under the Nazi flag. That's how extreme this one man's life is. So what caused him to live different in a time of correctness? Fascinating study. So Nachmanides, a 13th century rabbi, says, this is a Jewish man, precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations, which is interesting because the Jews still quote this, and when they quote this, they will refer to Winston Churchill, that Winston Churchill was the king that was raised up at the very hour the Jews needed a rescuer, just as Esther was raised as a queen at the very hour of deliverance. So the Jews still regard Winston Churchill as one of their chief rescuers, as a gift from Jehovah to them. Isn't that fascinating? Even though he's a rather odd, rotund character, this man has a quality that the Jews highly respect. What was that? What happened? What was the dynamic that took place? So I'm going to call it the unfair challenge, May 10th, 1940, thrust into the impossible. There is not a worse job description on earth than what Winston Churchill is going to receive. When Uh, Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of Great Britain at the time, Neville Chamberlain is going to be the chief architect of the appeasement campaign. He is going to be the one that signs the Munich Pact, which basically allows Hitler to invade Czechoslovakia and they'll turn a blind eye. He is literally sacrificing countries that he has promised to defend because he wants peace, 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 peace at all costs. At this time in Great Britain, it is politically incorrect to stand against Hitler. It is intensely politically incorrect to even mention the word war, to mention resistance. It's obvious that this is evil. It's obvious to everyone, but everyone wants to bury their head in the sand and say, whoa, 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 I can't hear, I can't hear, I can't hear. Winston Churchill is a thorn in the side of Great Britain at this time. And all the politicians are really upset with him because he will not stop talking about Hitler. We must do something. But no one wants war. No one wants fight. No one wants to do anything but bury their head in the sand. And their prime minister is leading the way. He is the voice of the people. This is what the people want. They want peace at all costs. Even if it allows evil to take over all of Europe. Even if it means evil takes over all of Europe. I mean, that's how bad it's getting. Okay, so I don't know if... I mean, I I don't want to strangulate anything and force you to see... The parallels between what is going on in our world today and the fact that it is incorrect to stand up against it. When you have these movements that are actually housing very similar ideologies, and yet you cannot stand against it. And back in those days, it was called hate mongering and warmongering. And so you just better be quiet. You may think that, but don't say it. And so the one guy who would say it, Winston Churchill. This guy is out of, cut out of a different cloth. That's all you can say is, but something prepared him for May 13th, 1940, May 10th, 1940. There's something that prepared him. And that's what I would like to examine because what makes someone ready for this sort of challenge? He is going to, Neville Chamberlain is going to be voted out because Hitler is going to show his cards. He is going to once again, violate a treaty. He's going to once again, be proven to be a liar and a cheat and a scoundrel. 
And finally, the British people awaken and are stirred to the point where like, Neville Chamberlain, you trusted this guy? And of course, they're all the ones that were supporting him. But they're all going to turn on Neville Chamberlain. You know the one guy that stands up for Neville Chamberlain? Winston Churchill. Figure that one. This man is, has such an honor streak to him. Because in the British system, you always show respect to your authorities. He shows respect to his king, even if his king is losing his marbles. He shows respect to the prime minister because he's his prime minister. And so everyone else is turning on him. He stands up and defends him. I mean, at the risk of his political career, he stands up and defends the prime minister, the very one that he has been chewing on the whole time because he's a man of honor. Fascinating study just to, to watch how these things unfold. So as a result of this, Neville Chamberlain is going to willingly step down and he wants to appoint someone to replace him. But, and he's, they're trying to figure out who to appoint. But if he appoints someone who's like him, which would have been Lord Halifax, there's no way the opposition is going. They'll just vote him out. It'll be like the classic picture in Parliament where they're yelling and throwing things. It won't go over well, right? The opposition party is not going to accept that. There is one guy in all the nation that could be accepted right now because he's the one guy that has stood against Hitler the whole time. And so Winston Churchill is thrust into the prime minister position at the very hour that no human would ever want to be the leader. It is the darkest hour, and that's why it's oftentimes referred to that, the darkest hour. So the 10 leadership challenges of Churchill. There are probably a lot more, but this will be a good overview. The British people were fearful. This is a great and mighty nation, and then in the past, fears nothing. They're an island nation. No one can actually touch them. You know that Great Britain is not, had at this time not been invaded on its shores for a thousand years. Why are you fearful, Great Britain? They're fearful. They recognize the Nazis have grown large and Great Britain has disarmed. That's what they've been doing. The entire time that Nazi Germany is arming, Great Britain has been disarming. And because they didn't listen to Churchill, we have to arm, guys. We cannot allow him to surpass us in arms. Otherwise, we're sitting ducks. Oh, we trust him. He promises. He doesn't want war with us. He doesn't want to fight us. Now, suddenly... Nazi Germany is boasting power in Europe right across the English Channel, and the British people are fearful. The British people, come on, guys, you're fearful? Yeah, they're fearful. And Winston Churchill is going to step into a situation to lead a people that is trembling with fear. The British government was divided, oh, splintered all over. Talk about denominations. They cannot agree on anything at this point in time. And the, only, and the guy set over them, and this is the worst job you could ever get. You know that he is going to put together a government. He's going to take his greatest opposition, and he's going to make the government of all those that are the naysayers of his life. I mean, the ones that have criticized him most, he's going to say, come join my government so I can stick it on your shoulders too. It's brilliant. And as a result, the British government throughout World War II is going to be the most solid, unified thing that maybe has ever existed in world history. It's a fascinating study just in and of itself. And I haven't done any teaching on that, but it's an extremely fascinating thing. The British weren't sure that this war could be won. They didn't have confidence. Truly, if you were to ask the American government what their opinion was on the statistical odds of Great Britain lasting, even lasting a few months in this, they would have said, yeah, they're going to go down probably in three months. They won't be able to stand. This is the Great British Empire. And France, as, as Patan was uh, taking over the government in, in France and he was capitulating to uh, the Germans, he said, in three weeks, Great Britain's neck will be wrung like a chicken. So in other words, world powers were looking at Great Britain as they're going down. So this is right when Churchill is stepping in. Number four, 70% of the British armed forces were currently surrounded in France and appeared to be lost. So not only do the British have a very limited war machine built. 70% of their armed forces have gone over to France to help defend France. And now they are surrounded by the Nazis. If any of you have ever heard of the evacuation of Dunkirk, that's precisely what's happening right when Churchill is coming in. All of his army is surrounded. And if he loses 70% of his armed forces, you, you fill in the blanks of what happens next. They're dead. <laughs> They have no hope. And so this is what Churchill is inheriting. The French were folding 
and fast. Uh, France, who's their only ally at this time. France, how you doing over there across the channel? Because you're the mighty France. (laughs) You're like one of the most powerful military forces throughout history. And they fold up like a house of cards, right as Churchill is stepping into office. Great Britain is suddenly going to be alone in this battle against the mighty Nazis. And now all of Europe is occupied. And guess what? That means all of Europe's resources, all of Europe's fighting men are now in Hitler's back pocket. And it's a 20-mile gap between them and the island of Great Britain. And Great Britain isn't armed, and it's full of a whole bunch of fearful people. Okay, can you imagine getting that leadership job? All right, people, let's go. This is a hard situation. Number six, public opinion in the United States was decidedly against participating in this unwinnable war. United States, could you please stand with us in this? We're standing against a great evil. Excuse me, but yeah, we we don't feel that uh, it's the right time for us to participate. The United States is really embarrassing in the beginning of this war. Okay, they are thinking about themselves. They think Great Britain is going to fold up just like France did, and they are going to not help at all. I know that's a hard one for us to swallow, but you know what? We have our... We have our problems in our country too. I know we we like to think of it as being a perfect country, but we have made mistakes. Number seven, Great Britain didn't have enough money to build a military strong enough to combat this evil. They have massive war debts from World War I. They're not in any position to actually fund a military campaign. They don't have the resource. So it's one thing when you say, well, just build some some guns, build some tanks, do something. We don't have money for it. You, you, you need resource to be able to do this stuff. So he's inheriting financial ruin as well. Eight, Italy is seeing an opportunity. Remember, we just talked about Italy uh, in the previous uh, message. That Italy is seeing an opportunity that comes every 5,000 years to gain the upper hand on France and Great Britain. They are no longer an ally. So now Italy turns against them. All of these things are what Winston Churchill is walking into. Joseph Stalin, who's the ruler of Soviet Russia, Many of us know the name, right? Bad guy. Uh, Is no longer willing to work with Great Britain. Instead, he is going to supply Hitler with his strength. You know who offended Stalin? Neville Chamberlain. So Neville Chamberlain offends Stalin. So Stalin starts supporting Hitler. So instead of him helping the allies, we have it even worse off. Now the the largest source of resource, timber, oil, and farmland in the world is now supplying Hitler. Hitler. This is what Churchill is walking into. I don't know if you're feeling it. So you're like, I can't breathe, Eric. You might, you might as well stop now. We don't even need 10. Uh, I mean, nine was enough. Okay, this is impossible. Number 10, Japan is licking their chops and picking the right time to join this war and take their share of the spoils. We have such an unsteady world right at this exact moment. Churchill is going to be all alone. His second book in his memoirs is called Alone. <laughs> it's a whole book called Alone. And that's, he stood alone, not just as a man, but as a nation against all the evil in the world. And all those that would have agreed that this was evil and it should be stopped were silent and were waiting to see what would happen instead of participating in it. I mean, it's, it's a rough leadership situation. So I'm calling that leading in the dark, the Churchill model. Five strange things that were built into this man before he even arrived at this dire stretch. You see, he was built for this. What I desire in the church, what I desire in my life, in our ministry, and in you, is that we would recognize that there is a calling on our life. And even though we're in a season, just like Churchill was of, you know, before this, in the Neville Chamberlain era, where he is basically being uh, cast off, as the crackpot. Welcome to the church right now. We're being cast off as the crackpot. And even though it may not seem like we have much of a voice in this world, our world is coming to a crisis where the church of Jesus Christ is going to be needed. And the truth of the word of God is going to need to be expressed boldly. And so therefore there's a preparation season that is so critical that we embrace and that we don't overlook it and say, oh, disarmament, disarmament, disarmament. Instead, let's build 
up our military strength. At the same time that all of the leaders of Great Britain are pacifying and playing political correct, Churchill is studying Hitler. He is figuring out, he's, he's learning everything he can about this. Isn't that f- fascinating? He is ready for this job description. When he gets into this position, he knows world affairs better than anyone. He understands exactly what's going on. He's the only guy that led in, in all governments on earth that led in World War I and now will lead in World War II. He has a global understanding. This man is built for this hour. So let's go through five strange things that were built into him. Number one, I'm calling him the readied man. He is a rare thing on earth at this time. He is a Jewish sympathizer. And I, I know that sounds odd that that would be rare, but at this time, you're either usually neutral on the point where like, yeah, I don't really like the Jews either, but I'm not going to kill them. There was such a animosity at this time towards the Jews worldwide in a strange sense that a lot of people struggled to rise up and just declare that is wrong. They knew it was wrong to treat them the way Hitler was treating them. But, I I, I mean, I don't want to risk my nation over it. There's something different about Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is going to grow up. His dad, some of his closest friends were Jews. And these Jews cared for him at different times in his life. We actually lived with them. He has a an understanding of the Jews that is rare, especially among world leaders. And he is, from way back in the early 30s, when he's coming over to visit Germany, he is going to stand up to Hitler and say, why are you treating the Jews this way? Hitler immediately is going to put him on his blacklist. In other words, who is this guy that would dare you know, talk that way to the Fuhrer? And so what you see is this positioning taking place where he is decidedly in the Jewish corner. And you're going to see refugees from the Jews find place in Great Britain. And so the, the fact that that's on the table is extremely interesting to me in world history because we're not going to hear that very often. And yet it's extremely fascinating to me that there are things and sensitivity points that must be cultivated. Have you ever thought about that fact of like, what would I have done in World War II? I mean, I can't believe they're treating the Jews this way. However, most people did nothing. I want to be the sort that is warmed to God's heart and his mindset. That is wrong behavior. And that's what we see in him. He's the readied man. Number two, the man willing to stand by himself. He is not a political man in the classic sense where he's a party guy. He is going to flop parties. And that enrages everyone in every party. He, he literally will say, I'm, I'm not standing with you anymore. I'm going to go over here. And he doesn't care. It's like, hey, what's the closest thing to what I believe is what I'm going to stand with right now. And I'm not playing games in this. And as a result, he is going to be the wilderness politician. No one knows if they should say I'm a good buddy of Winston Churchill. And so at this time, he is in Neville Chamberlain's party, but he is Neville Chamberlain's pain in the neck. Because he's constantly questioning Neville Chamberlain. It's like, what's he doing in that party? Number three, the man who never learned how to give up. He's the dogged man of principle. This guy just will not bend. It's like, if he knows something's right, he's going to stand with it. And he knows that what Hitler is doing is wrong. And he knows that Great Britain has to stand up to it. He doesn't want war any more than anyone else does. But he knows that this must be stopped. And doing nothing will not stop it. Number four, the man who had already lost everything. He had already been ruined politically. He was the, uh, the commander of the Navy, uh, the British Navy in World War II, I'm sorry, World War I. And they are going to, there's an operation called Gallipoli that if you study it, you'll notice that there is one fall guy in the whole thing. It's a, it's a great idea. The idea of Gallipoli is a great idea. And if it had worked, Winston Churchill is probably going to be prime minister decades before. However, it is going to be a miserable failure. And there's all sorts of reasons. And if you asked Winston Churchill, he'd tell you exactly what happened. Okay? And it, what, that was not his idea. Wait, what happened was not what he said needed to happen. However, he's going to be the fall guy and he's going to be deposed. He's going to lose his position in the government. And so he's going to be removed from his naval operations and shamed in World War I. And as a leader, oh boy, this is in, in the British culture, which, you know, the, the dignity side of things, this is a really hard thing to walk through. 
He's already gone through it. He's gone, he went through it 20 years earlier. And as a result, when he gets to this, the scapegoat of Gallipoli, he's already lost everything. It's sort of like us as Christians. If we've already lost everything, if we've already died, we can now go forward. The, the statement, I remember uh, this one pastor saying, dead men don't get offended. If you dig someone out of a grave, you know, and start yelling at them and spit on them and slap them in the face, you're going to notice that they don't get offended. We have a tendency to get offended and to feel, to feel the weight of political social pressure because we're still very much alive. But there's something about this man who's already died. He's already been ruined. <laughs> Why? How he even got this position? He can't even figure it out, but okay, I'm going to use it. Number five, the man who didn't stand upon ceremony. In, in Great Britain, there's a lot of ceremony. He doesn't stand upon ceremony is the term. He wasn't too good for hard labor. So he's of that aristocratic class who doesn't ever soil their fingers. This man will get dirty. He will go right down into the trenches, and that is going to cause the common man to rise up and say, I want to follow this guy. And because of how he is wired, it is going to, have a strange, it's going to be a strange elixir to the nation. So Walter Thompson, who is his personal bodyguard, this is an extremely fascinating quote excerpted from Walter Thompson's diary. Winston, this is in the Battle of Britain. So the Battle of Britain, for those of you that aren't familiar, is going to be in 1940, when Hitler is going to actually attack, not on land, but by air, Great Britain. So he's going to bomb Great Britain. And this is going to, and, and Churchill is living in London and he will not leave. Of course, who do you think they want to take out more than anyone? They want to take out the king and queen and they want to take out Winston Churchill. But because of Winston Churchill's model, the king and queen stay too. And every, they're just basically going to doggedly stand and thumb their nose at Hitler. And this is one intense season, but it's going to bond Great Britain together because of this. And every day, Churchill would go out amongst the rubble. He would go out and meet the people. He would see what the ruins are and he would see where the people were at. And no, no leader had ever done this before. I mean, you don't get dirty. Winston went down on his knees to clutch a woman who still conscious was being dug out. For a moment, they looked at one another. Winston with his coat and trousers splattered with mud. The woman covered from head to foot in dust. Then with a tremor in her voice, she thanked him and was taken away by friends. There goes greatness, said Winston. Tears were streaming down his face. There were many occasions when he would silently, without shame or embarrassment, weep for many minutes. Five things Churchill did that inspired the world. So this is out of Winston Churchill's memoirs. He's going to say, after the first 40 days, we were alone. So France has now fallen. Italy has turned on them. I mean, everything has gone south, right? They're all alone in the entire world against this menace. After the first 40 days, we were alone with victorious Germany and Italy engaged in a mortal attack upon us with Soviet Russia, a hostile neutral, actively aiding Hitler and Japan, an unknowable menace. Number one, he didn't have fear in the crisis. If there's one thing, if I could just inject something into the body of Christ today, it would be fearlessness. If I had a choice, if I could somehow give you something, it would be that. Now, the Holy Spirit gives it, but you have to receive it. There is a way that a Christian lives and thinks that is very different than the world out there. COVID-19 strikes, and I tell you what, there's an irrational fear that began to control the entire world. It's weird, okay? It's, I was even staring at it at the time, and if you listen to all my daily thunders back then, I was saying the same thing. It's the first time in my life that I've seen that being fearful is now hip and cool. Okay, that's weird. Before that time, it was actually good and right and noble to be fearless. But now if you are fearless, you're part of the problem because you're a carrier and you are nonchalant about being a carrier and you don't recognize that fear is our great protector. So as a result, the whole world seemed to fall under this delusion that fear is a protection. Fear is not your protection. So as a result, if there is something that is needed, it's the same thing Winston Churchill had. He feared nothing. As Christians, we are commissioned and commanded throughout the text of Scripture to not have fear. God never gives a command without buoying it and without strengthening it with the resource he supplies. He will give us everything we need to stand solid and strong in our souls and to be unmoved and unshakable. 
So this is, uh, Churchill always had to have his night, his nightcap, is what he called it. I won't go into what the nightcap was. But he had to go to this local St. James pub and have his drink every night. And, you know, even his inspector, his wife is like, do not go out, Winston. Who do you think they want to take out? They want to take out Winston Churchill. Have they ever found out that he goes to the St. James pub every night? I mean, he's, he's a goner, Right. And uh, so he's, he's walking out in the open air with, you know, planes flying over. And he's totally unruffled. Listen to this quote. So this is Churchill to Inspector Thompson. Oh, no, Thompson is like, sir, sir, we need to get you inside. We cannot do this tonight. And Churchill says, I have someone else other than you looking out for me. And Inspector Thompson says, you mean Sergeant Davis, sir? And Churchill says, No. And then he points his finger upward toward heaven. I have a mission to perform, and that person intends to see that it is performed. Okay, now if you can get past the, the pub, <laughs> it's a pretty extraordinary picture of leadership. I mean, that's the funny thing with Hitler. With Churchill is you have this, this funny mix of, okay, <laughs> with wow. Number two, he wouldn't flee for his life. He would not leave London. And he is going to set a pattern. The, the people of London are going to so admire this man because he is going to enter into the danger right with his people. He's like, I'm not budging. But sir, you need to care for yourself. You're the prime minister of this country. The prime minister then needs to lead by being an example of fearlessness right in the midst of the danger. And basically he would say it over and over again or infer it over and over again. I'm an untouchable. That's the way he lived. He knew that he had a job to do, sort of like Esther. He knew that he needed to stand, and he would stand as long as God wanted him to. But right now, this is where I need to stand. Number three, he would walk amongst the rubble every day and be with the people. It's an incredible leadership picture. You're going to see the same. Now, I haven't gotten to Jesus yet, but if you were to understand the Jesus model, the reason we're so impressed with this is it is shadows. It is pictures of the Christ model. That he is literally going to leave his high heavenly place and he is going to become vulnerable down here. He is going to enter in, walk amongst the rubble where the bomb blasts are. He's going to come right here. Number four, he would speak words of hope and victory constantly. If you study his speeches and his radio broadcasts, extremely interesting. But this is what the people needed and he knew it. They didn't need to hear about the menace. They didn't need to hear about all that Hitler was getting away with. They didn't need to hear about how Hitler hasn't been stopped by anyone up to this point. The devil is going to rehearse in our ears as a church his accomplishments. You watch the news and you're going to hear the devil's accomplishments. What Churchill is going to do is he's going to bring in the opposite side. It's sort of like if it was the equivalent in the church, it's what the word of God states. This is what's a fact. We are going to win this battle. The enemy will not get the upper hand on us. And the people of Great Britain are like, ah, ah, and they're going to rise up. Unlike, it's going to be a flip in a country unlike any other time in history that I've ever seen. Like I told you, in 1939, you're going to have the weakest Great Britain maybe in all of history. In 1940, maybe the strongest Great Britain in all of history. What's the difference? Well, Winston Churchill. You have a man who is going to lead them out of the muck, out of their mire of self-absorption, into an outward turn to say, do you want to live or die? <laughs> this is evil. You stand for good. And he is going to call upon that heritage of Christianity in them to rise. I mean, it's, it's a powerful study. When you go through it, it's just like, wow, that's what I need. That's what we need. This is what the church needs. We need to rise up. Number five, he did not waffle, bend, or compromise. The impact upon the people. I just have a couple quotes, but there's loads of quotes throughout history on the impact upon the individuals, not just the nation. So here's a guy from Churchill. He's a junior member of the Churchill government, right? And two days prior, he had his wife prepare suicide pills, convinced the Germans were going to win. That's how desperate the British were. They really felt that Germany was going to win this thing and it was going to happen quick. And so what are we going to do when Germany wins? What are we going to do when they cross the channel and take us? 
So then suddenly everything is going to flip. Dunkirk is going to be the key that unlocks it all. Now, if you've never studied the evacuation of Dunkirk, it's, it's a worthy study. It is an extraordinary moment in history. Many people will call it the miracle of Dunkirk. But Churchill is going to requisition, oh, I don't remember how many boats it was. It's a, it's a lot of boats, 800, 8,000, it's an eight in it. And they're going to go across the channel. These are like fishing boats, pleasure cruisers, and go over and pick up the soldiers, that 70% of his armed forces, and they're going to get 300,000 of them back. I mean, it's just an extraordinary tale. And what this is going to do to the nation is hearten them. It is going to be a breakthrough where suddenly the fear is going to melt away and they're going to get the ancient roar back. So what he says is, my darling, he's speaking to his wife, how infectious courage is. I'm rendered far more in heart and confidence by such bravery. And then here's a a British middle-aged housewife that we have a quote from, Nellie Last. And she says, I forgot I was a middle-aged woman that woke up tired and often with a backache. This story made me feel a part of something that was undying and never old. Winston Churchill, this is one of his famous speeches. You're going to recognize probably the words in it, but this is right when it has happened. It is happening when the boats are crossing the channel to go pick them up. And this is what he is going to rise up in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of the darkness, he is going to speak these words. And this is going to change the course of a nation. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to rescue in the, in the liberation of the old. Leading in the dark, the Jesus model. So technically, that is a shadow. When you study Churchill, you can be inspired. You're like, that's, that's amazing. You study Jesus and you are changed. The very one in this story that I'm going to say is the very one who's knocking on your life saying, I would like to move inside and do this in you, through you. And that's what is so profound about the church of Jesus Christ. We are the house, his chosen vehicle through which he expresses his leadership, through which he expresses his grand nature. So the unfair challenge, son, I'm appointing you prime minister. The king is going to appoint his son to this impossible position. Jesus is going to come and be raised up to lead his people in the darkest hour. So the impossible leadership position that Jesus Christ was thrust into, we're going to call it 10 leadership challenges of Christ. The world is lost. If you see the the previous list that I gave, you'd notice a parallel in all of these things. The world is lost and to sin and don't even know it. Okay, that's hard because they're enslaved and they didn't even realize they're enslaved. Okay, that's, that's a hard people to lead. lead. Uh, at least the, the Egyptians recognize their enslavement to Pharaoh. And they're like, deliver us, Lord. Well, this is a people that it doesn't, they want to be delivered from the Romans, but they don't recognize the chains of sin. Jesus has to set them free from something that they don't even know they need to be set free from. Number two, the people entrusted with the word The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the people entrusted with the word are sharply divided and more interested in debating than in repenting. Uh Uh-oh. Remember how I talked about the divisions amongst the governments uh, in Churchill's time? That's the same thing in Jesus' time. They have division. Number three, the people he was coming to save wanted wanted him to save them from the power of Rome, but the power of Rome was not their biggest problem. Number four, the Roman government deemed him a threat, a political rabble-rouser. So in every regard, he has his work cut out for them, for him. If he's, Rome will arrest him if they get him too. He's a rabble-rouser. The Jews want him, and they're seeking to, to capture him and kill him as well. Okay, he doesn't have any safe spot here. How are you supposed to lead in that situation? Number five, the Jewish religious leaders deemed him a blaspheming, demon-controlled nutcase. Number six, even those that did believe him were paralyzed with deafening social pressure to remain 
silent. The social pressure in that day, I don't know that we can truly understand it. When we look back and we're like, why would they not declare Jesus? Why would they not confess Jesus? Because they're going to be thrown out uh, of the synagogue. It's like, I'll be thrown out of the synagogue. That's no big deal. You don't understand what it's like to be a Jew. The shame, the correctness of that time was to deny Christ and to declare him a false Messiah. And so when you have this tension and this pressure to say, even those that believe in him are silent. It's a funny thing. If you, if you study what's going on politically or even what's happened politically over the past four years with the, the Trump uh, thing, you have people that support Trump, but because he is so politically incorrect in our time, people don't want to acknowledge that they support Trump. It's a weird phenomenon, but that's very similar. Okay, now I'm not likening Trump to Jesus. Believe me, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. But it is a fascinating phenomenon that when you see the power of political correctness, it will silence those that actually are following a leader. Even though they're following, they don't want to say that they're following, lest they get treated the way he's being treated. They're wanting to kill Jesus. Well, I don't want to be killed. And so you see a fear of man controlling even those that believe. Number seven, there was a traitor in his midst that was money hungry. Uh Uh-oh, that could cause some problems. Number eight, his disciples were all bark and no bite. They were more likely to desert than stand firm. Number nine, the Jewish people were easily swayed. They could be conned into thinking that a Barabbas was more worthy of release than a loving Christ. Tough situation, guys, for this man to come into to lead. And finally, 10, Satan was licking his chops. He finally had the trap set and he was ready to pounce on the son of God and silence him. All right, could you imagine getting handed that? Here, son, here's your job. You see, even in Gethsemane, he's feeling the weight of it. And he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. That's how intense this situation is. And when you study World War II and what Winston Churchill went through, Winston Churchill's health is going to begin to break down. In fact, in the first few years, in the first, what, 18 months or so, he's actually going to have a heart attack that he's not going to be told about. His doctor is going to hide from him the fact that he had a heart attack. And so the next day, he's like speaking to Congress uh, in the United States. It's like, this is, sometimes it's better not to know that you're falling to pieces, right, under this. (laughs) Don't tell Jesus what he's sweating great drops of blood right now. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians 4, 8, 11 through 16. Now, without needing to go into it, because we're just going to finish with this thought. Jesus is going to do something that is going to change all of history. With such fearlessness, with such boldness, he is going to defy the ruling powers of that time, both of the Romans, the Jews, and of the satanic regime. The prince of the power of this era, the one who actually is over this earth, I always say, over the trash can. My, my illustration, my metaphor for how the devil works and his authority is this is all God's house, right? And yet then darkness is going to appear. This evil, this sin is going to appear. And so what does he do with it? He is going to separate out light from darkness and he is going to create a part, a hollow, which is what the concept of hell is. It's like a prison chamber inside of his house, just like you have a trash can. In our house, in the Ludi house, you pull out a little section and inside of it is a trash can. And inside that trash can is stuff of a different nature than the rest of the house. And if I find something of the wrong nature in this house, where do I put it? I don't stick it on the sofa. I stick it in the trash can. I know where everything that is opposite the nature of the Ludi house should go and it's in that trash can. And guess who's in charge of that trash can? Satan. He's the prince of it. I wouldn't brag about that if I were him. And yet when we sinned, We were opposite the nature of the house. And therefore, by legal proceeding and protocol, we were put in the trash can. But that isn't where he desired us. And because he so loves us and knows that our purpose was not to remain there, he went on the great venture to rescue us from the control of that evil environment. And so what we see is Christ leading us in such a profound way. His leadership as modeled both in and through how he lived his life, how he was prepared for that day, and how he chose in the darkest hour to lead silent as a lamb unto sacrifice. I mean, it's a 
profound thing. And when you compare it directly against Winston Churchill, you're going to see distinctions. Jesus is going to do something spiritually. Churchill was doing something physically. And the modeling of Jesus to actually stand and be falsely accused and to speak nothing. To actually be humbled and to be, have his clothes ripped off and to hang naked. This is God Almighty who is willing to be subjected to such ridicule. To have your beard ripped off is the highest degree of shame. To have it shaved off is enough, but to have it ripped off, highest levels of shame in the Jewish culture. He's going to have his beard ripped off and he's going to be spat upon. This is the face, the visage of the Most High God who is willing to come to this earth and humble himself. Why? Because he's leading a people. He's leading us as our king in this exact moment. Follow me, he says. God, I'm not sure I want to go there. You see Peter. Peter doesn't know if he can follow, but if you want to lead, you must learn to follow. If you want to lead the church of Jesus Christ, you must learn to follow the man Jesus. I, I don't know. I mean, crown of thorns, beard ripped out, spittle on the face, stripped naked, hanging there, silent? God, I don't know if I can go there. Here's the secret of Christianity. I went there, and now I want to go inside of you, move inside of you, and make myself at home, and enable you, carry you there, so that you can endure the very same things I endured. You see, we are being built out of the lumber of heaven, not out of the lumber of mere mortal humanity. God wants to come in as a carpenter and begin to structure us for such a time as this. With heavenly lumber, not something you dig in your own pockets to find, your own grit and determination, your own bravado and boldness. But with his boldness, with his courage, with his love, with his humility. If you try and find this stuff in your own lumber uh, yard, you're not going to find it. This is stuff that is imported from the heavenly country, Emmanuel's land. And if you let him take over this body afresh. You notice I always like to use the word afresh because some of you could always say, I did that. Uh -huh. Do it again. Let him have you afresh. I know that probably every single one of you in here has started that journey of saying, God, construction process, you have it. You're the carpenter. I will do what you ask. If you say, put that up, put that beam up, I want to put that beam up. If you say, square it, I'll square it. Put the plumb line on it, put the plumb line on it. But some of us have softened. We've gotten sensitized to the world again. We're, our, we're more aware of what the world is thinking right now instead of what the Holy Spirit is saying. We are more aware of the edicts of a governor than we are of the word of God. That isn't right. What matters to all of us is what God says. And we must freshly ratify the fact that we belong to him first. We are bought with a price. We are not our own. And when we do that, the sounds of hammer and chisel begin in the life of the believer again. God wants to move strength into your life. He wants to move furniture into your life. He wants to create a dwelling place that is befitting the king of kings. And when the king is comfortable and at home here, the world is going to be changed. Because the way the human life is designed, it's designed to showcase what's inside. What's inside comes out. Which is why when we face trials, when we grumble, when we complain, when we're fearful, it's showing that we're missing something on the inside. But when we face those trials and we respond with humility, when, when our beard is ripped out and we respond with silence and prayer. When we are hung naked and we can have the dignity of the Most High God in the process, something's inside of us. You see, when Jesus is pierced, when he faces that suffering, out of him is going to come what is inside of him. What's inside of Jesus? Well, it says that blood and water flowed out of his side. You know what that would mean to the Jew? Well, blood is life. Water mixed with blood. What is that? That's living water. What comes out of Jesus? A living river. It's called the river of life. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the life of God. 
When he is pierced, out comes love, out comes life. And that is the life that we partake of. He was injured so that we could receive life. Now we are the body of Christ. And when we are pierced, when we are challenged, we are leading nations by showing that what is inside of us comes out and blesses and gives to the world around us. We are in the ultimate time to bless the world right now. When Christians are pierced, when they are beaten up, when their beards are ripped out, this is when God shines brighter than any other time. Yes, we are called to lead in a difficult time, to lead in the midst of a dark world. But this is the privilege of privileges. This is the honor of honors. You do not want to choose a different generation. I know some of you have thought that through. It's like, God, you could have put me here instead. Like when you study a season of history, it's like, wow, that was peaceful. I wish I could be there. You actually want to be in the center of what God is doing. And if there was going to be a great harvest, you really wouldn't want to miss out on that. If there was going to be a great movement of grace and God was going to do something in an extra special way in this earth, why, why would we want to miss out on that? Of course, I need to add the caveat. It's usually going to be in the darkest hour. Do you understand that? Are you willing to count the cost? I want in on God's business. I know it's going to come with a cost. I've counted that. In the very beginning of my Christian life, well, my radical Christian life, because I was a Christian at the age of five, technically on paper. But when you're going to ask me, Eric, when did you wake up? When did you start functioning? That was uh, in 19, February 2nd of 1990. And I gave my life to Christ in a radical way. And I said, I'm all in, Lord. One of the first transactions of my soul was, I'm willing to die a martyr. It's literally how it started. That's my root system in my life. And I have had moments in my life where it's been fairly clear that God is preparing me for that. I have no choice over that. I have no control over that. But I think for every single one of us to recognize that there is no greater honor, no greater privilege than to be asked to lead in this circumstance, in the hardest of moments. We don't have to carry the weight of Gethsemane. Jesus will. We don't have to carry the weight of that cross. Jesus will in and through us. But we have to agree with it. And we have to allow him to establish us strong right now for what's ahead. By the way, when I say things like that, I know some of you might tremble a little, but for me, I get a little smile on my soul. I am excited about what is happening in the world. Not with what darkness is getting away with, but because I know this is God's hour. When the enemy comes in like a flood, he raises up a standard against it. So what am I standing on right now? Hmm. Guess what, guys? What am I seeing? The enemy's coming in like a flood. So what do I know as a believer? God's going to raise up a standard against it. We've had multiple awakenings in this country. I have no control over what's going to happen or how God's going to raise up a standard. He could raise up a standard by obliterating our country. <laughs> that could be a great statement to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world falls on their faces and recognizes, oh, the mighty nation of America has fallen. Maybe that's what God will do. However, God has placed a remnant in this country that cares deeply about the people of this country. And I believe that he is not wasting that inside of me or you. Why do we care? Why do we desire to fight? Because God desires to fight. So let's do it. You are being commissioned. And if you need to take this as your formal commissioning, uh, then do. You are being commissioned to lead in the dark. Let God move in afresh with his heavenly lumber and begin pounding away, sawing away, rasping away, doing what is necessary to prepare you for what's around the corner which is very exciting. Oh, I didn't read this yet. We're going to finish with Ephesians 4. When he, our great leader, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You could call that heavenly lumber. When he led captivity captive and he went to that high seat in the heavenlies, he supplied everything that was needed to build this thing known as the church of Jesus Christ. 
to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Father, I pray that your heavenly lumber would be supplied in abundance. That your great carpenter, the Holy Spirit, would move in and do your work inside of us. That we would be constructed after your pattern. That we would be built strong and stout and bold and courageous, marked by love and humility for such an hour as this. Lord, this is your time. Shine. Show yourself strong. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.